Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Today's podcast is sponsored by Filter Time, a company I love. It's a subscription-based service that ships the exact air filters you need for your home automatically, right when they need to be changed. Before finding out about Filter Time, I have to admit, I did not change the air filters in my home nearly enough. According to the EPA, the air within our homes can be more seriously polluted than the outdoor air. Upgrading your HVAC filter is one of the most effective and easiest ways to improve the indoor air quality in your home and to avoid those extra maintenance calls. Filter Time offers American-made high-quality filters with a MERV rating from 8 to 13. With this company, shipping is always free. You can pause or cancel at any time, and they offer a 100% money-back guarantee if you're not happy with your new filters. And the best part is, if you aren't in need of new filters quite yet, you can sign up today and choose a later start date during checkout, and you won't be charged until that date. Go to filtertime.com backslash justingredients, and a 20% off coupon will be automatically applied to your first shipment. Dr. Josh Redd is a chiropractic physician and author of the Amazon best-selling book, The Truth About Low Thyroid. Dr. Redd owns seven functional medicine clinics in the Western United States called Red River Health and Wellness. They see anywhere from 200 to 300 patients a day, and these patients come from across the country and around the world who are suffering from challenging autoimmune, endocrine, and neurological disorders. He studied immunology, virology, and epidemiology at John Hopkins, where he is an MAPHB candidate. He also teaches thousands of healthcare practitioners about functional medicine and immunology, thyroid health, neurology, lab testing, and more. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Red. I am so excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. That's a mouthful. I'm sorry for all that, but, but thanks for having me. This will be great. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you be here today because I know you could talk on a variety of topics. You are a wealth of knowledge in so many areas, but I know your specialty is Hashimoto's. And I know at Red River Wellness, you guys deal with a ton of Hashimoto's patients, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hashimoto's is kind of like my sixth child. I love Hashimoto's. It's it's one of my favorite topics Uh, out of the you know, out of the two to 300 patients a day that we see, I bet half of them have Hashimoto's. And in my personal opinion, it's probably one of the most neglected and overlooked conditions in the country right now. Like you would be shocked at the stories that, you know, I could share pertaining to patients that sit in my office and just kind of like how they go through this model of treatment, really neglected, not really understanding what's causing their condition, what triggers it. Um, and they, 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 feel hopeless. They feel like uh, nobody cares. It's a really frustrating place for these individuals to be in. And so, you know, I took on uh, a great love for Hashimoto's probably about 10 years ago. One of my first patients in my pubescent years, I didn't even, I, I, I didn't even have to shave at the time, <laughs> but I remember walking into the office and she immediately started to bawl. She just started crying. She just said like, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. Like I can't do this anymore. And she was with her husband at the time. She said that she she said that her son was asked to draw a picture of her at school and he drew a picture of her in bed because that's how oh. he knows her mom. She pulled this out of his backpack and was like, what's this, honey? And he said, that's, that's you, mom, because you're always in bed. And she just started to sob. And, and she had been to specialists all over the country trying to figure out how to get this Hashimoto's under control and what to do. But she literally had no answers. And that was really my first like experience where I knew like, nobody's helping these patients. And, and if people are, uh, there's, there's not many out there that really understand Hashimoto's and know how to help these patients. And these patients are totally like, like being totally misunderstood and mismanaged and overlooked. And so from that point on, I've kind of committed, like everything that I do from this point on is going to help Hashimoto's patients and to know everything that I can about Hashimoto's. I got a really good mentor. His name, his name is Datis Karaz, and He's probably one of the top Hashimoto's and thyroid researchers in the world. And so he's helped me out a lot as well. Uh, but this has really become a passion of mine and a great love for sure. And it's, and it's so rewarding too. Like when we can really get to the mechanism of why these patients feel bad and you can see an individual that's suffering for the last 20 years and they improve and feel better than they have in three months than they have in 20 years. I mean, that's, 
you can't get a better job than what I have, you know? That's awesome. Well, that is why you're here is for me to pick your brain because I do have so many followers dealing with Hashimoto's and a lot of people confused with the information that is out there. So um, that's why I'm so excited to have you here. And I know you're going to answer a ton of questions for people, but we're going to start at the very beginning and work from there. So because I may have some listeners who don't even know what um, Hashimoto's is. So what is Hashimoto's disease? And is this different from hypothyroidism? Yeah, so so great question. So here's the deal. About 80 to 90% of those suffering with low thyroid actually suffer from Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease. Okay, so it's different than just a thyroid problem or a primary thyroid problem. This is an autoimmune problem that's attacking the thyroid at a rapid pace, and it causes permanent tissue damage of the thyroid. And so the thyroid can't produce proper thyroid hormones, but it also causes tons of problems throughout the whole body. It causes problems to the brain, the intestinal tract, the liver, blood sugar levels, hormones, you name it. Most people in America that have low thyroid suffer from this more complicated autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's. It's about a nine to one female to male ratio and anywhere from eight to 10% of females in the country have low thyroid. A lot of them don't even know it too. And so that's kind of a big thing. Like if somebody's listening to this podcast, for example, and they feel like, oh, I don't have low thyroid, I'm fine. Hold up for a second. If you have thyroid symptoms and you've gone to a number of doctors and they said your, your thyroid is fine, you still may have thyroid problems. You just have been mismanaged or, or misdiagnosed. Uh, and so close to eight to 10% of females have low thyroid. A lot of them don't even know that they have low low thyroid and they have symptoms. They just don't know what's causing it, right? Wow. Okay. So talking about signs and symptoms, what are these signs and symptoms that people may be experiencing that have the low thyroid or the Hashimoto's? So the most common ones will be like depression, fatigue, weight gain, hair loss. You can end up having intestinal problems or intestinal manifestations. But the the tricky thing about Hashimoto's is that you don't just have like low thyroid symptoms. You also have hyperthyroid symptoms. And so during during a flare-up, when the autoimmune disease is really uh, exacerbating and increasing, a Hashimoto's patient will end up having like anxiety, restlessness, insomnia, and a lot of those other symptoms too. So they kind of have the worst of both worlds. They have low thyroid symptoms, but they also have hyperthyroid symptoms. Uh, Headaches is really common swelling, a lot of these individuals will, will retain water. And so they might fluctuate in weight five pounds in a day just because of water retention and inflammation. Okay. So do we know what causes Hashimoto's? You know, that's a really good question. And, and that's something because of my patient population, we see patients from all over the world. We've tried to really tackle this and try to understand like, what is really the mechanism behind this and what's, what, what really triggers it and what caused it? One of the most common things that we're seeing in the literature is that estrogen fluctuations is kind of a big trigger. Uh, And so we we see that maybe going through menopause will trigger it. We see that maybe uh, getting pregnant and having birth of a child could trigger it. Maybe even just going through puberty can trigger it. There's a number of different things. We actually did a study, though, uh, where we try to figure out, okay, when did the patient pinpoint that they started to have these symptoms and problems when it comes to Hashimoto's? 51% said that it was during or after the birth of the child. They could almost pinpoint their child and be like, that's when I started feeling bad, right? 16% could pinpoint right before or during menopause. 8% occurred during like a stressful situation, like a death of a loved one or divorce or or something like that. And then ironically, 5% during some form of like extensive exercise, which is interesting. Like you never think about exercise inducing an autoimmune disease. Right. But in this case, we would have, you know, we had 5% of our patients said that they were training for a marathon or triathlon or, or you know, uh, a fitness show or whatever it may be. And then that's when their, their symptoms started and their autoimmune response started, which is quite fascinating. That is fascinating. Okay. So with it being estrogen triggered, I know a lot of things can affect that, like food and lifestyle and things like that. But Before we go that route, because that's a lot of information I want to ask you about. (laughs) Before we go that route, let's take a step back. How is someone diagnosed with Hashimoto's? This is where it gets confusing. And this is where it's, it's actually really simple. But this is the frustrating thing for me. If you have low thyroid and you don't know why, that's a problem. Like your doctor has to check for 
the antibodies, which are really simple through the blood work. The first one is a TPO antibody, and the second one is an antithyroglobulin antibody. This is really simple. So if your TPL antibody is above 30, it's likely that you have Hashimoto's. If your antithyroglobulin antibody is above 0.9, it's likely you have Hashimoto's. If it's outside the laboratory range, that's definitely a culprit. But here's the thing. You can have a normal TSH, which is what's called a thyroid stimulating hormone, right? You can have a normal thyroid to most doctors, but then you can still have the antibodies. And so we'll have a ton of patients that come in. They have all the thyroid symptoms. They have all the problems. They've gone to five different doctors. They've checked their TSH, which is a really simple marker. And they didn't check the antibodies. And so we run the antibodies and they come back really high and they end up having what's called Hashimoto's autoimmune reaction, which basically means that like, hey, you have Hashimoto's. It just hasn't destroyed the thyroid enough to cause a permanent low thyroid yet. And so these patients kind of get left alone and, and not treated properly and they de- you know continue to decline and so if your doctor like here's the thing if you have low thyroid you got to check for the antibodies no questions if you have thyroid symptoms you have to check for the antibodies no question like i said before 80 to 90 percent of those suffering with thyroid problems have hashimoto's in america and so you have to check it if your doctor isn't checking this he's a clinical dinosaur and you should find a different doctor uh, and, and, and it's, and it's unfortunate, but you really should. Right. Right. Uh, so that's like a simple test that you can do is through the blood work. There's other really cool tests that you can do that could be really effective. If you want to check, uh, obviously TSH is, is really common. It's called a thyroid stimulating hormone. A normal lab range would be 0.5 to 5.5. But, but here's the thing. There's a difference between like a normal lab range and then like healthy ranges. And I don't know if you know this, but like over time, over the last 20 years, because our population is getting sicker and sicker and sicker, these lab ranges are getting bigger and bigger and more broad and more broad. I've heard that. So like what is really normal isn't normal. Like, especially for us, like we see patients from all over the world. So I get to see lab ranges, lab ranges that just, that that are so drastically different. uh, It's pretty wild. And so we have like healthy ranges and a healthy range for a TSH is 1.8 to 3. But that's another thing too. Like you could check. T3, you could check reverse T3, you could check T3 uptake. There's a number of other lab ranges that would end up identifying exactly what's causing your low thyroid if you had thyroid problems or if you had thyroid symptoms that most doctors don't even check for. But the first one that you should absolutely check for is the antibodies, no question. That's so interesting because I know I have a lot of um, listeners and followers who have said that they're they've gotten the TSH tested and their range is totally fine. And the doctor says, okay, you're good to go. Your thyroid's fine. And they're really struggling with some of these symptoms and saying, no, I don't feel good. I've got, you know, the fatigue or the hair loss and depression, whatever. And the doctors just brush them off. So this antibody test is really important then that some of these doctors are skipping. It's, it's so critical. This is the main reason why people have low thyroid in the country, it's only getting worse. And so you have to check the antibodies. Another easy marker to check too, like I can't tell you how many patients we have that go from doctor to doctor. They run the TSH or a really simple thyroid test. They don't really know how to even read them, to be honest with you. And then they get sent to our office and, and they say, look, my doctor says my thyroid is normal, but I feel terrible and I have all these thyroid symptoms. And then we go and lo and behold, we test for all the different uh, thyroid tests. And they come back and their thyroid's a complete wreck. And they have so many different problems causing thyroid symptoms, right? But a simple one above and beyond the TPO antibody and the antithyroglobulin antibody is simply T3. Like 93% of what our, our thyroid produces is an inactive T4 hormone, which means your body can't do anything with that. Our body has to actually convert it into T3 in order for it to be utilized effectively at our cell. And think about this, every cell in our body Uh, utilizes thyroid hormone, this T3 hormone. And so if it's not converting from T4 to T3, we have a ton of problems. So big time trouble if every cell is using it. Exactly. So at least check for T3, like the antibodies in T3 is going to be critical. But what that will do, if we check for T3, it will allow us to see if things are converting properly. And a number of patients might have like a normal TSH, but then they have really poor T3 levels and they have this poor uh, convert, you know, conversion problem that we're talking about. And that's driving a lot of their symptoms because their cells aren't actively able to utilize T3 hormones effectively. But here's the thing, 
even that's not a problem. Like a conversion problem of T4 to T3 isn't a thyroid problem. Just like antibodies or Hashimoto's isn't a thyroid problem, right? What the problem is it? Pro so, so like Hashimoto's, for example, is obviously an autoimmune disease. It's a lot bigger, more complicated problem. This, this underconversion problem, 60% of it's converted into the liver. 20% is converted into the intestinal tract. So if you have dysbiosis mm -hmm. or problems there, it's not going to convert properly. The other 20% is converted into peripheral tissues. So if you have inflammatory markers and inflammatory problems, it's not going to convert properly. And then to make matters worse, the hormone that helps it convert into all areas is cortisol, which is your stress hormone. So if we have a patient who's living this high stress life and they're constantly, um, you know, they, let's say they have a, a bad marriage, let's say they have high stressors in their lives, let's say they have a death of a loved one or whatever that may be, it's likely they're going to have underconversion problems. And if, if they went to a standard doctor to get checked and the doctor runs a TSH and that's all they run, we're going to fail. Because they could have Hashimoto's, then they could have this underconversion issue, and then this patient's left going from clinic to clinic, feeling like they're crazy, and really they're not crazy, they're just totally mismanaged. Wow. Okay, so review for my um, listeners, there's basically five tests that they can ask for, right? Five ones that you really promote yeah, the, or like. For sure. So for what, sure. tell them the five names that they should ask their doctor for. Five easy ones. Like they can even, like they could have their doctor run this and they could know exactly what's going on. So the first one is easy, which we, which we talked about is TSH. Our healthy ranges for a TSH is 1.8 to 3. The second one is we like to check for total T3. And the reason why we check for total T3 is because it gives us a good idea of, of this conversion, uh, how your T4 hormones are converting into T3 hormones. The next one that we like is T3 uptake. This is a really good one. And I'll try to explain it so that it's not confusing. But the reason why we like T3 uptake is because if T3 uptake is low, it's likely you'll have what's called a protein binding problem, which means when your thyroid releases thyroid hormones, they bind onto a protein. And that protein kind of acts as like a taxi cab or let's say an Uber. Once the Uber or taxi cab gets to where it needs to be, if you have a protein binding problem, it won't release it. And so your thyroid hormones can't be utilized effectively. It would be like going to uh, an airport. And then once you get there, the Uber just like locks you in the car and you can't get out. Right. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> so, analogy. I mean, it's exactly what would be going on with your thyroid hormone if you have a T3 uptake problem. So if you see T3 uptake below 28, you have this protein binding problem that can cause a number of thyroid symptoms. And again, that has nothing to do with your thyroid. Ironically, the thing that will cause a T3 uptake problem is estrogen, high estrogen. When we have these individuals that are estrogen dominant, that can cause a number of problems with this protein binding issue. But then at the same time, guess what one of the biggest triggers is to flare up Hashimoto's? Uh, besides inflammation? Yep. Tell me. High, high estrogen. Oh, uh, well, yeah, you just told us that. I was yeah, thought I was supposed right. to guess something else. That's all right. That's all right. That's good. So we can really utilize this for, for two reasons. One, we can inadvertently see if they have estrogen, estrogen dominance and if it's causing problems. But at the same time, we can see if they have a protein binding problem. And then obviously the, uh, the next two are the TPO antibodies and the antithyroglobin antibodies for Hashimoto's. That's a must. Like everyone has to check that. One other one that I haven't really explained much is reverse T3. You've probably heard about reverse T3, but what reverse T3 does for us is that if it's above 24, it's usually due to a severe stress response or elevated cortisol. Guess what another huge trigger is for Hashimoto's? Cortisol. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Ele elevated cortisol. Elevated stress responses are one of our biggest triggers for the Hashimoto. So we can run these thyroid labs and see exactly what thyroid problems that they have that are driving symptoms. And really, it's so much more complicated than just a TSH. But they're easy enough that you could do these labs and it'd make a huge difference. Man, those are that's incredible information because so many women deal with estrogen problems. How many p women are estrogen dominant, you know, with, oh my goodness, I could go, we could talk hours on estrogen. No, with... we could talk for days on estrogen, even, <laughs> even for men. Like we, we say women, but at the same time, like men are, are dealing with estrogen dominance. Like it, it's, it's, we live in a crazy world right now where everything that we're doing is increasing estrogen, right? Right. That, and then cortisol playing a huge factor. How many people have 
cortisol levels that are not right. And it's due to a lot of the stress that we're going through. So Yep. And it it directly ties into this reverse T3. But guess guess what, though? If we have cortisol is our stress hormone, right? Um, If we have cortisol defects or problems, we're going to also have under conversion issues, too. Because if you remember, cortisol is what helps convert T4 into T3. Right. And so estrogen, cortisol, inflammatory issues, those all play a huge role on how our thyroid hormones are actually functioning and whether or not they're being utilized effectively at the cell. That's amazing. Okay, so. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, I wonder if anyone understands a word that I say. Oh, we do. <laughs> you know, just because, <laughs> just because uh, hopefully this isn't too much information, but my goal really for a lot of our patients and really for anyone listening is I want you to know more about this stuff than most doctors do. And it won't be too challenging because a lot of doctors don't really understand Hashimoto's. But if we can help you understand some of these simple concepts when it comes to these, these lab ranges and when it comes to uh, different triggers, it could play a huge impact in your health and in your quality of life and in your family's life, right? For sure. And I'm always telling my listeners, empower yourself with knowledge. You will be able to make better choices if you understand this. And so you've just given them five tests to go make sure they do with their doctors, which is amazing. So now that we've talked tests, let's talk about things that they actually can do in their life, things that um, empower themselves to make these better choices. So let's start with diet because diet plays a huge role in Hashimoto's. Let's talk about, should we talk about gut or inflammation or both? We can talk about all the above. Diet's so critical. Like here's, there's nothing more frustrating than to hear a patient come back and their doctor says, yeah, yeah, diet has no no play in your Hashimoto's like that just drives me nuts. Oh, like if you wow. like Google like gluten or dairy with Hashimoto's next to it in PubMed, we'd have massive stack of, of literature and research that comes up. Right. And so diet lifestyle, you know, and your environment play a critical role in your health and definitely in Hashimoto's just for fun. We did a, a like, just to give you an idea when it comes to Hashimoto's gluten and Hashimoto's, is as common as celiac and Hashimoto's or, or celiac and gluten. Oh, wow. So let me rephrase that. So gluten and Hashimoto's is almost as common now as gluten and celiac. We oh, know okay. without question, because there's so much literature and research that gluten will you know, flare up a Hashimoto's patient. That's just what it is. There's other food proteins too that will mimic uh, gluten or that can flare up a Hashimoto's patient. And really it could just depend on the patient, but gluten is probably the most common one. Outside of that, it could be dairy, soy, corn, rice, eggs, uh, artificial sweeteners, pork. I mean, there's a number of things there. Um, so the biggest thing is to just check to see uh, what in food, you know, what food intolerances that you have. And if you have food intolerances, it's likely that those food intolerances will flare up a Hashimoto's patient. Oh, interesting. Um, one of the biggest things when it comes to Hashimoto's is that you'll have what's called TH17 cells. When those cells increase, wherever the patient has antibodies, like whatever tissue the patient has antibodies to, in this case, Hashimoto's and and thyroid, they're going to have a flare up and they're going to have tissue damage occur. So if a person is intolerant to, let's say, dairy, every time that they eat dairy, it's going to increase TH17 cells, which will then in turn flare up the Hashimoto's and cause tissue damage at the thyroid. Diet is so, so critical. We want to make sure we identify any possible trigger when it comes to a dietary component that will flare up a Hashimoto's patient. We did a study too, where we just said, okay, what are the most common foods that will trigger an autoimmune patient, specifically Hashimoto's? Let me give you the list. I would love to hear it. I'll give you the list. But again, it varies differently. Gluten is 100% the most common was our biggest top trigger. Uh, Dairy was our second trigger. Interesting. Soy was our third Soy is really, no matter who you are, soy in America is not great. So uh, corn, rice, eggs, artificial sweeteners. Now, artificial sweeteners, we know a lot about that. You, you're I like smile star, because yeah. I'm like, oh, let's talk about those. I mean, so, so the gut microbiome is so critical when it comes to Hashimoto's patient. Artificial sw- sweeteners will kind of act like chlorine does to bacteria in the pool it will do the exact same thing to the intestinal tract and the gut microbiome. It literally will destroy your healthy bacteria. 
And so that's why artificial sweeteners is not great. Artificial sweeteners will also induce intestinal permeability. And so when it comes to a Hashimoto's patient, that intestinal lining is so critical and important for a Hashimoto's patient. If you were to eat anything that will break down that intestinal lining, it causes a ton of problems and artificial sweeteners. There's tons of research showing that it actually does that. Oh, I'm so glad you um, stated that because I talk about artificial sweeteners all the time because in um, the woman's world and the diet culture, artificial sweeteners aren't everything because it's low calorie, low fat, low sugar, and it's just hurting it's, a lot of these it's, women. It's backfiring. You're right. You're, you're right. And, and honestly, this is why I think autoimmunity, one of the reasons why autoimmunity is exploding over the last 20 years. Oh, right wow. now, I think close to 20% of the American population has some form of an autoimmune disease or autoimmune reaction, and it's only getting going to get worse. And I think it's, it's largely because of these types of things that we're talking about and artificial sweeteners is one of them. That's amazing. Like, like just to give me an idea. So your intestinal lining is really critical. It's a barrier that kind of like, as we eat food, our intestinal lining is a barrier of what goes into the bloodstream from the intestinal tract, right? right. It's really important. If that barrier breaks down, we're toast. <laughs> Which <laughs> like, a lot of Americans, though, it has started to break down. Yes. yes, Most, and, and we call, most people. We, exactly. We call that a loss of oral tolerance. If that barrier breaks down and proteins get into the bloodstream that shouldn't be in there, then the immune system freaks out and becomes overzealous. And research is showing that if we develop a food intolerance, that, that's, this is essentially what causes food intolerances, is that breakdown of, of the intestinal lining. Right. And research is showing that if that barrier breaks down and we keep eating the same food that our immune system is reacting to, within five years, we're guaranteed to develop an autoimmune disease. Wow, crazy. And so a lot, a lot of these times, these patients are, are losing what's called oral tolerance. Those barriers break down. They start to react to certain foods that they shouldn't. And then all of a sudden they develop an autoimmune disease. But guess how long, if, if we have a Hashimoto's patient, this is why the intestinal lining is so critical. This is why diet is so critical, that knowing what foods will trigger the autoimmune disease is so important. Because guess how long it takes to break down what we call tight junctions, which are those barriers that allow proteins to go from the intestinal tract into the bloodstream. Guess how long it takes to break down those tight junctions. If we were to eat something that we were reacting to that was highly inflammatory. A couple minutes, a couple days. Exactly. No, a couple no, three minutes. minutes, three minutes, three minutes. We, we, wow. So if I have a severe gluten intolerance or dairy intolerance and I have Hashimoto's and then I eat gluten and dairy, those tight junctions can break down and become destroyed in three minutes. That's Guess crazy. Yeah. I talk about leaky gut all the time about this, but I've never looked into the time frame of it. So yeah. I'm so glad you it's, shared that. I learned something exactly. new today. Exactly. And guess how long it takes to improve? Well, I've read lots of different studies on that and it can take months. Yeah. Three to six months. Uh-huh. We can break it down in three minutes and then it takes three to six months to improve. And so that's where it's like, we have to be so careful about what we put into our body. If we have an autoimmune disease, specifically Hashimoto's, because we could flare things up and it could last up to three to six months. Right. To keep this in perspective too. Guess now which medical school has the most research going on when it comes to intestinal permeability? Harvard. Harvard. I was just going to say Harvard. Yep. yep. You're right. And so like this, a long time ago, intestinal permeability was like hogwash or like right. folklore, right? Not yep. many people understood it. Now, like we know everything about intestinal permeability. We know what triggers it. We know what causes it. We know what breaks it down. We know how to improve it. Like there's, there's a ton of things that we know about intestinal permeability. So, uh, but Diet is huge for sure. So let's tell the listeners some things they can eat to help the gut. We know artificial sweeteners are bad. We know the processed sugars. We know all those, a lot of those man-made chemicals, the high processed oils, things like that. Those are bad for the gut. What would you say is best for the gut? It's a fantastic question. The old school model of treating the gut was like probiotics, right? Mm -hmm. We now know way more and we now know things that are way more effective. One of the most common things is just, is just fiber. Fiber breaks down into what's called butyrate. And butyrate is used as fuel uh, throughout all the cells in our intestinal tract. We found that when butyrate breaks down, uh, then intestinal permeability can be induced. But only when butyrate breaks down and, and becomes deficient in the intestinal lining. And so butyrate, 
fiber is critical. Uh, that's probably one of the most common and powerful supplements for an autoimmune patient and for Hashimoto's. Well, it's critical, but yet Americans, most Americans only get 15 grams a day where we should be for women like 25 at least. And men should be at least 35, 38 grams. And here we are at like 15. hundred yeah. percent. So like, yeah. The no fiber, the fiber feeds the good bacteria in the gut as well. Yep. And yep. if we're not feeding it, they still need to be fed. So they eat off the like intestinal lining, basically. Yep. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. It's, it's so, so important. Another simple thing that we do, like and you, you just nailed it too. Like if we wanted to, if, if we wanted to induce a Hashimoto's flare, we would just basically put the patient on a, on a like standard American diet. I was just going to say on a typical <laughs> you know? diet. I mean, it's so bad, but, it, but it's so true as well. Um, one thing that is really important and is even more effective than, than a probiotic would be eating a variety of vegetables. And so what I mean by this is our gut microbiome changes every three days. If you're eating the same foods over and over and over, the gut microbiome becomes stagnant and then it diminishes. And then we have a ton of problems just from that. So like some of our severe Hashimoto's patients, they have like a list of five foods that they can eat and they're intolerant to everything else. And that in turn is actually flaring up their Hashimoto's because they're eating the same foods all the time. Oh, interesting. And so one of the simple things that we'll do is we'll have our patients go to the store and they'll buy the most random, craziest vegetables. We'll have them try to avoid nightshades and lectins. But outside of that, we'll have them grab a ton of vegetables, blend them up, a, a huge variety that they wouldn't even eat you know, normally. And then they'll blend them all together and then freeze them. And then every day they'll take two tablespoons of that and, and eat it. And that's one of the best ways, eating a, even eating a huge variety of vegetables. It's not really the amount. It's just the actual type of vegetable that helps the gut microbiome flourish and be really, really powerful. So that's one strategy that we'll do for our patients as well. That's a great um, tip. I love that one. It, it's, it's really easy too. So a tablespoon, one or two tablespoons a day, you can put it in a smoothie, you can put it in something else, whatever you want to put it in, uh, will be extremely effective and powerful for the intestinal gut microbiome. Even if they're cruciferous vegetables? Yeah. So cruciferous, cruciferous vegetables can be beneficial for a patient. It's different, right? So um, I will typically say have them avoid nightshade veggies and lectins. Outside of that, I say, I say, do it. Okay. If patients have problems, then they can avoid those. But, uh, you know, it depends on the patient. Everyone's a little bit different, but I, I say to go ahead and do cruci uh, cruciferous vegetables for sure. Okay. I know you've talked a lot about the gut and how that has a huge role and the food has a huge role, but something that people get confused on who are just starting with Hashimoto's is they'll write in to me and say, hey, my doctor said I need to go on an anti-inflammatory diet, but I don't even know what it means to have inflammation and what really is an anti-inflammatory diet. So can you address that a little bit? Like I said before, when we talked about inflammatory markers or, or just inflammation in general, you'll have something in your body called cytokines, and that's just another medical term for inflammation, okay? Um, when inflammation increases, it's going to flare up the Hashimoto's. And so our biggest goal for our patients is to avoid inflammatory foods. It's really simple. Like the anti-inflammatory diet is fantastic. Uh, if they can be even a little bit more strict and do the autoimmune paleo diet, that could be even better too. Uh, but avoiding inflammatory foods like gluten, dairy, soy, grains, sugars, uh, and eating a variety of vegetables, fruits, beans, peas, nuts, seeds, you know, different healthy meats like uh, chicken, turkey, uh, things like that, that could be really effective for them. For most of our patients that start out, they'll start out on an anti-inflammatory diet. And so if an individual can do that, it could be a game changer because what they're doing now is they're drastically decreasing inflammation with simply their diet, which will help calm down and dampen the Hashimoto's. And so their symptoms will improve. And for the first time, their body and immune system kind of gets this break that it's needed for so long. Right. And right. so having patients avoid inflammatory foods is, is great. Well, it comes down to eating whole foods and really eating whole foods is the best thing for all of us, you know, rather than the processed junk, it's 
the whole you foods make, from nature. <laughs> you make that sound so easy, right? But, <laughs> it but should yes. be easy, huh? <laughs> Un unfortunately, we live in a world where we've done all that we can to increase the quantity of our food while the quality just goes to crap, right? That's true. Uh, America has really, really done a poor job at helping develop food. Like it, now we have these this food that has the shelf life of 13 years without it going bad. And that unfortunately is creating a lot of problems for our immune system and for our health. Like that's why, like, for example, I, uh, ABC took me on a trip to, to Europe and ironically I had a ton of patients that are like ABC executives and, and, and anchors and all that stuff as well. And a lot of those patients would go to Europe and they could eat a lot of different foods that they couldn't eat here. And they kept coming back to me like, Dr. Red, I feel so good. I just ate this, this, and this. And I feel amazing. Like, why is that? <laughs> oh, and, I could talk on hours about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but that's because unfortunately America is doing such a poor job at producing food and it's causing a lot of inflammation, a lot of stress in our body. And so doing all that we can to minimize inflammation is, is, is so critical for sure. Okay, well, thank you for explaining the gut, the inflammation, and food. Let's move on to another topic. Do environmental factors have a role in Hashimoto's and in low thyroid? 100%. There's, there's no questions about it. Let's say we have a Hashimoto's patient that also has antibodies to fire retardants. That could be really bad because every single piece of new furniture that we have is now sprayed with fire retardants, right? Like kids' pajamas right now are, oh, are sprayed I with fire know. retardants. So let's just say we have a Hashimoto's patient with also antibodies to fire retardants. That patient is doomed if they get new furniture. That patient's doomed if they get close to pajamas and, and it somehow gets into the system. And baby you, car seats and baby strollers and yeah, the yes. list could go on. You're the expert in this, this one for sure, but absolutely environment plays a huge role. Let's, let's say for example, a Hashimoto's patient has BPA antibodies, which, is, which comes from plastic when it's heated, right? Right. Let's say the Hashimoto's patient they're on the anti-inflammatory diet. They put it in, you know, they put their frozen food or their, their cold food in a plastic container and, and then they put microwave. it in the microwave. Oh. It releases BPA. If they have BPA antibodies, even though they're eating healthy food, the BPA gets into the food and then flares up the Hashimoto's. So environment plays such a critical role in that. Or let's say, you know, one of the most common ones, let's say somebody has BPA antibodies and they go to Starbucks and get like a, coffee, a hot coffee or a hot chocolate and they're drinking from a plastic lid, again, they just induced an autoimmune flare if they have right. BPA antibodies, right? But you think about this though, and this is a good topic, like how many listeners do you think would test positive for endocrine disruptors like BPA or test positive for parabens or heavy metals? Everybody. Like what? Yeah. 99.9% <laughs> Every... of them. Yeah. So let's say, for example, we take 10 of those listeners and two of them are really, really sick. Uh, why is it that two are sick, but the other eight aren't, right? The reason why is because the, the two have lost what's called chemical tolerance. So just like we talked about oral tolerance when it comes to food and our immune system attacking food proteins, you can also lose what's called chemical tolerance, which basically means we'll get this overload of chemicals and uh, our body for some reason or another, now starts to have an immunological effect on these chemicals. And then it causes the autoimmune response to flare up and cause the Hashimoto's to flare up as well. So you think like one person goes through a birth of a child, a death, divorce, or stressful event, and then all of a sudden they lose chemical tolerance and they become really, really sick. Like this could be any of us tomorrow, right? Uh, once you lose ke chemical tolerance, your immune system starts to react to specific chemicals and it causes a whole ton of problems with our immune system. This is where, you know, we have to check for uh, different environmental compounds that a person might be intolerant to because it can definitely play a role in the Hashimoto's uh, and, and it can definitely cause problems. But, you know, when it comes to environment too, it can also be, it, it's not as easy as like eliminating everything, unfortunately, right? We definitely want to try to minimize the exposure, but it's not just the exposure that's jacking things up. As a Hashimoto's patient, you have to improve your body's ability to adapt under high chemical loads, if that makes sense, right? It's not as simple as like, you can't eat that food or you can't drink out of that bottle or you can't breathe that air. Or nowadays we can't even go into the bubble because the bubble's made out of plastic, right? <laughs> so like it, what's crazy too is like research studies are now finding pesticides in our own drinking water that are causing intestinal permeability. Right. So it's like, 
we're exposed to so many different things and we're going to continue to be exposed to more and more things as we go. And so we have to be able to improve how we manage chemicals and how we adapt to chemicals. One of the most common things is to do is like improving those barrier systems that we talked about when it comes to like fiber, when it comes to butyrate, uh, glutathione is one of the most important and critical components when it comes to helping get rid of chemicals. Like if there's one, one ingredient that would be the most effective, that would be glutathione. And that's because glutathione helps with what's called phases one and two of biotransformation, which is the medical term for our liver detoxification. Uh, glutathione helps with, with the intestinal membrane and helps with those thick barriers. Glutathione helps decrease those TH17 cells and decrease the Hashimoto's response. It helps with brain inflammation. It helps with overall inflammation. Like that's one of the things where if somebody has severe environmental um, triggers and they have antibodies to a ton of different things, that's one of the things that we will do to make sure, you know, we'll provide them with high dosing of glutathione to minimize their reactions. So I tell everybody there are a ton of toxins in this world and we'll never be able to avoid them all. One, we can minimize them by what we're using, choosing to use. And two, we can help our body detox a lot of these toxins. Like you were talking about the liver. The liver plays a huge role in all of this, don't you think? And the glutathione is our master antioxidant, which is a huge help to our liver in detoxing this stuff. Huge. And and you're exactly right. Um, and, And the older we get, the more important glutathione becomes, like the higher... Uh, amounts of glutathione that we should actually take. But you're exactly right on that. Well, and I tell people our liver is an amazing organ. It really is miraculous with what it does. And to trust it, it will be a great detoxer. But at the same time, a lot of our livers are sluggish right now because of all the toxins are overburdened. And so let's do those things like taking glutathione and uh, increasing our fiber, things like that to help out the liver. Yep, you're exactly right. Huge component for Hashimoto is one of the best things that you can do. One of the best things that we do in our clinics now is is that very thing for sure. Okay, so I have another question. Well, actually, wait, before I move on, environmental factors. We didn't talk about parabens or phthalates, and I talk about that a lot on my site because they're a lot in a lot of beauty products. Do they yeah. play a role? Because they huge, are endocrine right? disruptors, yeah. so they are yeah. messing with the estrogen. No questions asked. They're huge endocrine disruptors. They even can mimic, even though it's not estrogen, they'll mimic estrogen right right right. and so at the same time they can flare up things like crazy so trying to avoid those as best as you can will play a huge role because when we have this these estrogen fluctuations when estrogen becomes dominant in our system it's one of the greatest triggers that will flare up the Hashimoto's parabens phthalates you name it uh you want to try to avoid those like the plague if you have Hashimoto's one of the most ironic things things too is you'll have patients that are either on estrogen or they're on like birth control and nobody really will check to see their estrogen levels. And all of a sudden estrogen becomes extremely high. And then that flares up the Hashimoto's on top of the parabens and phthalates too. So you want to make sure that if you're on any of that stuff, you want to check your estrogen levels frequently and you can check that T3 uptake uh, marker in the blood, which is really simple for you to see if you have this estrogen dominance going on there. If you do, Phthalates, parabens are like rat poison to you, right? You want to try to minimize as much exposure as possible when it comes to those. Oh, I'm so glad I asked you because I talk about those quite often. Yeah, which is so great. I'm so glad you do. Okay, so now moving on, we've talked the food, we've talked the gut, we've talked um, environmental factors, but I'm curious, exercise plays a role in a lot of people's healing um, issues, but does it play a role in Hashimoto's? Yeah, that's a great question. So here's the thing. Exercise could either be your greatest friend or it could be your greatest demise, basically. So we'll have a lot of really severe patients that have Hashimoto's and exercise will actually induce what's called exercise induced cytokines, which is just inflammation. And then it will flare up the Hashimoto's. And so initially, if they have a ton of things that are triggering the Hashimoto's and then they try to exercise on top of that, things will explode. They won't feel good. They'll feel terrible. They'll have the Hashimoto's that will flare up. It will be a disaster, right? Right. And so to a certain extent, if a patient is is not a severe patient, exercise could be incredible for them. Uh, we like uh, high intensity um, interval training as well. That's probably our most, our, our favorite. We want the heart rate to get really high 
typically we'll have our patients, even if it's just like 10 to 15 minutes, uh, do high intensity interval training just to get their heart rate up. And, and research is showing that that, that um, essentially produces what's called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, mm-hmm. which is huge to decrease TH17 cells. And so if a patient, um, you know, when it comes to a Hashimoto's patient, if they're really severe at first, we'll help calm down the inflammation and then we'll slowly in, introduce exercise. Okay. And then we'll build up from there as they're improving and as they go along. Uh, if the patient feels pretty good, uh, right away, we'll at least add in 15 minutes of high intensity exercise for them to do. Um, and, and just so that we can get that BDNF to be released, because it plays such a critical component to help calm down those TH17 cells. But that's, that's one thing too, is the base that the patient is really their best doctor, right? Uh, and in essence, if they exercise and they feel worse for two days afterwards, they know that they flared up the Hashimoto's by those exercise induced cytokines. And so we'll have the patients kind of fill it out. Like, Hey, how much can you exercise without having a flare up? And let's try to work on that initially and then build up from there. And, and that could be so different from one patient to the next. Right. Right. Well, an exercise does help balance hormones, which is important for that estrogen dominance. And it does help with detox. So yeah, two wins you t- there you took also. the words right out of my, my mouth. Yeah. It's, it's huge, huge. Okay, so moving on from exercise, a big one I get asked all the time, what supplements should I be taking? So are there supplements that aid in the healing? This is a fantastic question. And some of my worst patients are patients that come into my office with like a bag full of supplements. Like they have rotator cuff tears because they're (laughs) carrying their supplements around everywhere they go, right? Mm -hmm. And they just like crash the bag down and... Like those are literally some of my worst patients. And the reason why is because there's different binding agents and fillers to those supplements, or they're made and produced in an area that might have gluten, dairy, or soy, and they have no clue. And they're taking supplements to think that are actually helping them. And it ends up causing the autoimmune response to flare up and make it makes it a lot worse. Wow. There's also certain supplements too, unfortunately, that will flare up what's called B cells and natural killer cells. And it will actually exacerbate the Hashimoto's and autoimmune response too. So nutrients, we have to be extremely careful about what a Hashimoto's patients take. If they're take like, look, even for me, I might only give a patient four to five supplements at a time, and they're all going to be immune neutral, which means they're not going to flare up those B cells or T cells. And at the same time, they're going to make sure that they're not like processed in a factory with like gluten, dairy, wheat, or any of that stuff. Right. Right. Um, so that's like my first advice when it comes to supplements, the top supplements that I could tell a patient to take would be glutathione that I talked about. We've tested glutathione. I'm not kidding you. Like over the last 10 years, because we know glutathione plays such a role. We've probably tested over a hundred glutathione supplements. And it's good for us because I can literally tell a doctor, Hey, I can tell all of our doctors at one time, Hey, give your patients this, if they need glutathione and let me and report back and let me know if anyone's improving. So I can literally like do my own like research studies. Mm-hmm. The, the most effective glutathione that I, I now, uh, we now use is something called uh, trisomal glutathione from what's called apex energetics. It's probably the most effective glutathione that we've seen for Hashimoto's patients. The other glutathione that's beneficial is something called trifortify orange. But glutathione is, is, like I said, the best thing that we can give a patient. Vitamin D, as simple as vitamin D is, vitamin D increases what's called regulatory T cells, which helps decrease those TH17 cells. Huh. And so vitamin D is a simple supplement that we'll have our patients take on a consistent basis. And we'll have them monitor their, their, um, their levels you know, every three months or so. But vitamin D is so critical. Vitamin D will help with the intestinal lining. Uh, vitamin D will help with the brain. Vitamin D will help with blood sugar levels. Vitamin, vitamin D helps dampen TH17 cells. It's, it's huge. It is uh, a big the, one. And I want to say just like the glutathione, there are junk ones out there and great ones out there. So to make yes. sure you get a good one. Yes, you're exactly right. Um, making sure that you have the, the proper vitamin D is important. Um, the other really good supplement that we use is, like I said, butyrate, because butyrate has such a key role in the intestinal tract. And so we'll have our patients take high, high doses of, of butyrate, um, and, and that could be really effective. What about uh, like uh, selenium or magnesium? Either of those or not really? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's another thing too. Is like selenium and magnesium's fantastic. It's 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 okay, but it's not going to have like as big of an impact as it will these other ones. Like, okay, when I'm giving anyone supplements, I want to make sure that I, that that the supplement will have the best what we call hormetic effect, meaning that if I give a patient a supplement it's probably going to do like five to six different physiological things in their body that they need at that time. Okay. It's not going to be just, just as simple as, as one thing or not, you know? Okay. So uh, glutathione, D, glutathione, vitamin D and vitamin D, the butyrate. Uh, butyrate is critical. One thing when we deal with these really inflammatory patients and, and, and you know, when you have an autoimmune disease, inflammation is likely going to be high is you can try out turmeric mm-hmm. or resveratrol. Mm-hmm. Those are great ones. Turmeric and resveratrol are one of the most anti-inflammatory agents that you can take. And so uh, during flare-ups and when patients feel bad, we'll have them take like high doses of that as well. Sometimes you might have a Hashimoto's patient that won't be able to tolerate turmeric or turmeric might even flare a Hashimoto's patient up if they're not careful, right? It's rare, but any of these things that we're talking about could flare up an autoimmune patient. You You just have to try it out and make sure that you feel good. So just be mindful of that. Those are really, really beneficial supplements. Like if I was just going to treat someone in a general sense, vitamin D, glutathione, butyrate, turmeric, resveratrol, those are incredible. And at the same time, if they were to eat an anti-inflammatory diet, why they took those supplements, they would feel markedly better just from that alone, right? There's a a supplement uh, from a company called ProVantage Health, which is like a multivitamin on steroids. It's got really absorbable B vitamins and all sorts of really good stuff. Uh, It's called Vicatalyst. It's a multivitamin, but here's the problem. When somebody is taking a multivitamin, if they have Hashimoto's and there's iodine in it, iodine can be like rat poisoning for a Hashimoto's patient. Usually if you just had like a primary thyroid problem, iodine is fantastic for that. Okay. But unfortunately, research is now showing that iodine actually triggers and will flare up the Hashimoto's. And so these patients will have like iodized salt or they'll take a multivitamin with iodine in it. And in turn, they're actually inducing an autoimmune flare. Oh, interesting. And so you got to have these patients uh, make sure and take a, a multivitamin that does not have iodine in it. And that's why we use Vicatalyst. It does so many different things to different parts of the body. It doesn't have iodine in it and it has all the absorbable vitamins that, that a patient needs. Like there's lots of supplements out there where the vitamins just don't absorb effectively and they're just really poor. And right. so I'm pretty strategic about what supplements I give my patients and what I have them take. But those are really, really good ones that I would say to, to go for. Okay, good to know. And it is so important to get get a high quality one like you talked about. Um, okay, I just have a question. So with this anti-inflammatory diet and the environmental factors and the gut and all these things we've talked about in these supplements, are you suggesting all of that the same for people with low thyroidism as well? So it, it really depends. There's like primary thyroid problems where they literally just have a primary thyroid problem and, and they could take a thyroid medication and be totally fine. Their ability to adapt in chemical loads, their ability to uh, break down protein and food properly is beneficial and everything's great, right? Where we start to have a lot of severe problems is when there's these severe Hashimoto's and autoimmune issues or where, where there's underconversion problems that are derived by stress or these protein binding problems derived by estrogen, those are when like taking some of these could play a dramatic role, right? Okay. Uh, and where, where it will be really effective for sure. Okay. So another question that I get asked a lot is, can a person who's on thyroid medication right now, can they wean themselves off of it? Can they come off of it? Can they heal themselves? That's a really good question. And it depends on how long they've had Hashimoto's. Um, if they've had Hashimoto's for a long enough time, so just to give you an idea, Hashimoto's is literally where your immune system is destroying the thyroid at a rapid pace to where the thyroid can't produce proper thyroid hormones. If you've had Hashimoto's for long enough, it can destroy the thyroid enough to where you, you're not going to be able to produce proper thyroid hormones at all, right? Your body doesn't like replace damaged thyroid tissue with, with thyroid tissue, unfortunately. It replaces it with like fibrous gummy tissue that doesn't produce thyroid. So, you know, it doesn't produce thyroid hormones. So, uh, we want to be very, very careful about this. And here's why I mentioned earlier that every cell in the body utilizes thyroid hormone. If a person has Hashimoto's and their thyroid is permanently damaged and then they get off thyroid hormone, 
it could be severely detrimental to their brain, to every part of their body, their intestinal tract, you name it. And so okay. uh, there's some patients where if you catch Hashimoto's fast enough, yes, 100%. And they do fantastic as long as they come down their Hashimoto's. There's, there's the majority of Hashimoto's patients that we see will have to be on some form of thyroid hormone for the rest of their life, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, as you come down the Hashimoto's, uh, they might be able to uh, get off a lot of their thyroid hormone, but still have to be on some thyroid hormone. Okay. Uh, but it really just, a, you know, it's, it's a patient by patient basis. Some, some can, uh, but those are typically the ones that are caught early enough. So what about if it's just low thyroidism and hasn't gotten to Hashimoto's? Can you wean yourself off the medication or you don't suggest it? Again, that's something that I would advise to have them work directly with their doctor and follow you know, closely. But this is where we have problems. If somebody has a primary thyroid problem, you got to figure out what's causing it. So many patients, they know they have a thyroid problem, they're on thyroid hormone, and yet they've had it for 10 years and nobody knows what in the world is causing it. And so at the same time, I would say, get to the mechanism of why you have a thyroid problem to begin with, improve it as best as you can, and then you can work with your doctor to see if you can get off or wean off your thyroid hormone, right? Gotcha. So they need we to have, find the underlying root cause. Exactly. Which, yeah, exactly. I get that. And, and, and that right there, with the tests that I mentioned earlier, if you go through those tests in great detail and you can get those tests to improve, uh, there's a chance you can, but there's a lot of our Hashimoto's patients that just, just can't ever do it. And, and we've tried. Look, I've, I've done all that I can, and I spent my whole life life for this to figure out ways that we can. But unfortunately, because the thyroid hormone plays such a critical role for these patients' health, that's just one area that you just want to be extremely cautious with and make sure that your doctor is following you and holding your hand along the whole process to make sure that you don't cause any problems long-term. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so we have talked about a lot today in this past hour, and I'm sure some are feeling really overwhelmed. Um, what would be your main tips you would give those that are diagnosed with Hashimoto's or struggling with these symptoms? What would be your takeaway? Yeah, great question. Here's the deal. 80% of our Hashimoto's patients would do extremely well by just doing a few things. Like if, if we did nothing else and you started an anti-inflammatory diet just for one month, like don't, you don't have to do it for the rest of your life. Just try it for one month and see how you feel. That could literally change your life. Another thing too is try the anti-inflammatory diet, take turmeric, take glutathione, increase your vitamin D, make sure you have proper fiber, decrease, uh, you know, decreases inflammatory foods. And just that alone could be life-changing for you, right? Wow. So okay. if you're overwhelmed by all of these things, just make those like simple changes. And this is what I tell doctors too. Like, cause usually when we go and teach doctors, it's like three days of just imagine like what we did the last hour and then times it by eight hours and do it three days <laughs> and in then a row. More depth. These doctors are yep. these doctors are fried, right? But what I tell them is like, look, just avoid the inflammatory foods, increase your vitamin D, increase glutathione. Take some things to decrease inflammation like turmeric or, or resveratrol, you know, resveratrol and just do that for one month and see how you feel. And there's about 80% of our patients that could do really well just by doing that. The biggest thing too is like Hashimoto's patients don't realize how bad this is. We did a, a study where we wanted to check to see, look, if somebody has Hashimoto's, what's the most common autoimmune disease linked with Hashimoto's? And we found that about 40% of our Hashimoto's patients have antibodies to what's called myelin basic protein, which is neurological tissues. And so these patients are on thyroid hormone. Most of them don't even know they have Hashimoto's, but at the same time, the Hashimoto's patients, 40% of them end up having antibodies to neurological tissue as well, which, which just goes to show like, look, calming this stuff down as best as you can could save you for 20 to 30 years from now. Like you will be so grateful for those simple sacrifices that you make to minimize this inflammatory response and this autoimmune response. It sounds really challenging at first, like, a, like an anti-inflammatory diet, but at the same time, it could literally be life-changing for years to come and it could help you dramatically, right? And a lot of our patients too, they don't realize like how bad they feel. Like they put it off to being a little older or having children or whatever it may be. And they don't realize how good you can actually feel, right? And uh, so- I know, yep. You know, my biggest thing is like, just don't give up hope, keep trying, keep working, do the best that you can. 
and it will pay off in the long run. But these simple steps that we talked about today uh, could have such a huge impact if you just follow them. That's the thing too. Like there's, there's a lot that goes into, should I avoid environmental toxins? Should I avoid these dietary foods? Should I decrease inflammation? Like where do I even go? Like, how do I start? Like, look, if you have 10 different triggers that cause it to flare up and you avoid five of them, you're going to feel better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you can avoid eight of them, you're going to feel even better from there. If you can avoid all 10, fantastic. You're, you're going to kick butt. Right. And so just do the best you can do with, with what you have available and it will, it will pay off for sure. I love that you say all of that. I love that there is hope for these people. There, They are empowered now with this information. Hey, just change these few things in your diet. Add these things into your diet. Take these supplements. Doable, doable steps. So I love that you've given them some doable steps because sometimes they come to me after being to a doctor and are confused and frustrated and don't even know where to begin. So I love that you have just empowered my listeners to give them knowledge of where they can begin. So thank you so much. Yeah. And that's, that's one of my, my favorite things to do. And that's so important for a patient. But at the same time, it's not like we have some Joe Schmo that just doesn't know anything about Hashimoto's and we're just guessing if this stuff works or not. Like this has been proven patient after patient after patient after patient for the last 10 years. And so the things that I'm telling you to do I'm telling you to do because it's been the most effective things for our patients all over the world for the last 10 years. Like I know without question it works, right? Right. Um, and there's and, study and so, after study done on it 100%, as well. hundred um, percent. And so these simple things can play such a big role in their health and in, in their health, you know, years to come. Right. So I know some of my listeners are going to definitely want to reach out to you, to your clinic. So tell them where your clinics are, where they can find you, things like that. So uh, we have seven different clinics. We have four in Utah, Logan, Springville, South Jordan, St. George. Uh, we have uh, one in Albuquerque. We have one in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. We have uh, one in Boise. Is that seven? Yep, that's seven. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they can, they can reach out to us, call for a free consultation. My intent of doing this, though, is really just to help empower them so that they can do on their own. Like if you start to work on these strategies and things aren't improving like you want, then then definitely call us. You, you could also go to a functional medicine practitioner anywhere in the country, um, you know, uh, that could that could help. But we'd be more than happy to, to see them. They can also follow me on Instagram. at, at It's at Dr. Josh Red. Uh, and we just started it. And so uh, we'll be putting a bunch of tips on there and different uh, videos and things for patients to to utilize and, and for their help and benefit. Um, but they can do that as well. And then so you've also go to, got a website as well. Yep. Yep. They go to redriverhealthandwellness.com or drjoshred.com. And we have so much literature, literature and research and videos and informative things for patients and, and people who suffer with autoimmunity or Hashimoto's uh, that could be beneficial for them as well. And we'll put all of that in the show notes as well, because I actually really loved your new Instagram account. It's been fun following it, and I've learned a few little things from it. So I just thank started. you. I just started. I know. I, I just, it's great. I see you, and I see all your followers, and I see how much you do. And I'm like, that is so much work. You know, that's a lot of, that's a lot. It is I a am. lot of work, but it's worth it. It's rewarding. <laughs> it is worth it. I mean, you empower and you help so many people, and I just love everything that you're doing and all the all the great things that you have going on there. You, you just, I, well, and, I, and I'll say you. this that, too. That is very nice of you. I teach doctors across the country from all different professions on environmental toxins. And I will 100% admit, nobody knows all that you know. Like you kick some major behind. You, you rock, you dominate. <laughs> You're nice. You're and, very nice. You could be teaching these courses and it'd be so effective and, and uh, so great for these doctors. You know, you, I'm just so impressed with all that you do and, and all, the, all the great things that you have going on. And with how much like solid, great, information that you provide for for all of your followers and, and listeners like the things that you do and the things that you research are incredible and and you do it in a medical standpoint to where it's all research-based uh and you spend the time and effort to to make sure that you give the best information for for your followers and i just love it i, well, I just have thank, so much respect for you thank you that is a huge honor coming from you so thank you i appreciate that um something that i always close my podcast with is I ask my guests, what do you think is the best ingredient in life? Because I am just ingredients. I'd love to hear what you have found to be the best ingredient. The best ingredient. 
Oh, that's a good question. Did you mean like as far as food or like what, what we put into our body? Or, or, <laughs> it can be either. I've had emotional. I've had actual food products. We've had I'll give all you, things. I'll give you two. I'll give you two. Okay. One, and I said this throughout the whole whole show, is, is glutathione. <laughs> as far as taking glutathione, it's by far the best ingredient. It does so many different things in our body and it has so many positive benefits when it comes to an autoimmune and Hashimoto's patient. And even if you don't have autoimmunity, glutathione is so critical. And, and like I said before, the older we get, our need for glutathione increases. And so it helps it helps so much that that's my first ingredient. Okay. My second ingredient, uh, is gratitude, right? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Love gratitude. One of the quotes that I love the most is gratitude is a catalyst for all Christ-like attributes. Gratitude plays such a, a critical and important role in our lives. No matter what our circumstances are, we're, we're, you know, uh, being I, grateful for our circumstances and where we're at in life, uh, no matter how, how hard or how challenging or whatever we're going through, you know, I think provides so much hope and, and faith and, and so much help uh, in life, especially I, when things get challenging. I right? love it because we're all going to have hard, dark times. And if we can get through those with gratitude and hope, then we have learned and grown from it. So I love that. Yep. Thank you so much, Dr. Red, for being here on the podcast. I love what you have taught. You have empowered my listeners, and I hope that they can uh, just take away so much information from this and better their own health. So thanks, thank you so thanks much. Thanks so much for having me. You are just so incredible. Keep, keep up the hard work, and, and I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.